Hi, and welcome to Women at Warp. Join us as a crew of four women Star Trek fans boldly go on our bi-weekly mission to explore our favorite franchise. My name is Sue, and thanks for tuning in. With me today are Grace. Hey, everybody. Andy. Hello. And our special guest, Char. Char! Hey! It's good to be back. How are you guys? I missed you. We miss you, too. Oh, feeling loved. Yeah, Shara is the former host of the Star Trek Voyager podcast, To the Journey. To the Journey! To the journey. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. I, you know, to be honest, since I'm not doing the show anymore, it, it doesn't matter as much to me. <laughs> <laughs> but you're currently doing a show on the Nerd Party Network called Punch It. That's right. Yes, I'm now on a uh, show called Punch It. It is on the Nerd Party Network, and it is with my longtime co-host that I did with To the Journey with, and that is Tristan Riddell. We talk all sorts of things about writing and pop culture. We've branched out. We talk much more than just Voyager. We do pretty much whatever show we want. We talk about the writing. We talk about the process. We will write episodes on the fly. We all do. We do all sorts of fun stuff. And so, uh, if you've not picked it up since we have ended our journey onto the journey, please give us a try and let us know what you think. Awesome. So today we're going to be talking about season one of Star Trek Voyager, sort of like in the past we talked about season one of DS9 when Andy finished watching it for the first time. Finally. Since she is our first time Trekker. Good job, Andy. You just got to experience a fantastic Voyager. Ha ha. But before we jump into the Delta Quadrant, um, we have our typical housekeeping. So as always, we want to remind you about our Patreon. Patreon is a platform that allows listeners and, and supporters to help us out by pledging anywhere from one to as much as you want to give dollar per, per month to help us produce this content, to upgrade our equipment, and to start new things like the Women at Warp blog, which we launched at the beginning of this year. And so if you're interested in helping us out, you can find our Patreon over at patreon.com slash women at warp. We also want to mention the Women at Warp book club, which operates through goodreads.com. We're currently reading the Legacy series, which is the 50th anniversary collection of, of three books, focusing on Una, or as we know her, number one. So we'll be covering those books in an upcoming episode. Take a look. It's in a book. The Women at War Book Club. (laughs) Nice. And as I said, we launched our Women at War blog at the beginning of January. We are publishing a piece of original content and then usually a cross post of some kind each week. So that's two pieces every week at this point. And if we meet our next Patreon goal, we'll be able to increase the number of original posts that we publish so give us money you see that cash <laughs> throw some mo throw some mo throw some mo i was trying to be you know polite about it shut up and give them your money <laughs> <laughs> well i went for the Nicki minaj quote so i i stand by that choice all right so let's let's jump into voyager and i'm gonna kick it over to char as our resident voyager expert what would you say are the defining characteristics of season one Okay, season one of Voyager, I feel, I mean, it's a shorter season than the norm, right? And I feel that it has some major highs and some major lows. I mean, it is kind of a typical Star Trek season in that it has some rocky points, but it also has some really brilliant, exceptionally well-written episodes that let us know who these characters are and embraces the mission of Voyager so beautifully. And so you get sort of a little bit of a grab bag. You've got really good and you've got really bad, but compared to other first seasons of Star Trek shows, (coughs) this one overall is, yes. (laughs) (laughs) I wasn't going to name names, but since you went there, yeah. This one is much easier to stomach. It's a lot smoother. They've learned some lessons over time. You can tell, and it's kind of nice. And uh, so just as an overview, that's what I'm going to say about that. I mean, I thought it was pretty strong right out the gate. I really liked the pilot caretaker. I thought it was a, a solid pilot. Like It was a little bit too much plot. A little bit. But overall, I thought they did a really good job of introducing the characters, which I think are the strength of Voyager so far, is you've got some really amazing, sharply drawn characters on this crew. 
And when you were getting into that that pilot, what were you expecting? What did you think lay ahead of you? Janeway. <laughs> <laughs> that is the correct answer. There for the hype, man. You were there for the hype. I was. I mean, I've been wanting to watch Janeway since I started watching Star Trek. I've always been looking forward to that. There's one reason why I decided to layer my live tweeting with Voyager into DS9 is because I wanted to get to Voyager faster because I wanted to see Janeway. (laughs) Well, sure. I mean, this is a women-based podcast. We have to talk about the woman captain, the first to command a series. And, of course, there was a bunch of drama even leading up to prior to the release of the show with Jean-Vierre Bujol bowing out and Kate Mulgrew coming in. She just, you know, she was shot out of a cannon. She embraced it so incredibly and did such a beautiful job of just taking the reins, being the leader that the show needed and and becoming Janeway. I mean, this character, she strikes you from the get-go. Am I right, Andy? Absolutely. In the very first episode, her the very first shot of her, and she's got her hands on her hips, and she just yes. looks so commanding. And you can just, I don't know, I, I don't know if it's just the strength of Kate Mulgrew as an actress, but you feel like her warmth, but her strength at the same time, which I think is really hard to pull off. And something that took time for Picard. Like, Picard came off as pretty cold at the beginning, and it took a little time before you could really see all of the the layers that he had there. I feel like I got to know Janeway a lot faster. Plus, just that first appearance of her is just so well set up, and she looks magnificent. It's like the entire scene just came together around her. It did. The camera work. You can't... I mean, that's probably the best thing they could have possibly done to introduce Janeway. They nailed it. You could almost believe that she'd been standing there posing for days and everyone just kind of walked on set. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, are we starting? Here I am. Yeah, that's right. I am Catherine Janeway. Bow down to me. Hello, plebs. It is I, your Captain Queen. (laughs) (laughs) So the premiere was actually... Very close to the day we're recording, but in 1995. So almost exactly 22 years ago. Yes, indeed. We are not that old. (laughs) I watched the show when it debuted. I was 13. (laughs) That just is unreal to me. uh, Aging is weird. It is weird. This was the first Star Trek show where I remember the press leading up to the start of it. Yeah, I do too. And I don't know if that's because they made a bigger deal out of it or... Because it was just the first, I was at the age that now I was paying attention and now I can remember it. But there were, you know, TV guide after TV guide, magazine after magazine, all focusing on this new show and especially on on Kate Mulgrew and Janeway. Yeah, oh, definitely, especially because of Kate Mulgrew and Janeway. I think it's a little bit of both, though. I remember a little bit of hype for Next Generation. I do remember a little bit of it, but I also think I was a little too young to know the scale of that hype, so I can't really measure that. But oh my gosh, I gobbled up all of that press leading up to Voyager. And I think the series premiere Caretaker is one of the best pilots Star Trek has done. They did a great job of introducing these characters Getting it set up, you know, they set up the stage for Voyager's Journey Home. I felt they did a very decent job, but these characters especially, from that, like, from from day one, from the first episode forward, I am on board with these characters. I fell in love with them. Yeah, I think that they did a good job of balancing everyone and making sure that everyone got a chance to shine and giving us a sense of each and every one of them, which is tough. It's a tough thing to balance. Totally. Also, comparatively speaking, it's a very well-paced pilot. It's really difficult to be able to give an entire ensemble of cast members each a little moment where they get their due and you get your introduction to them as a character while establishing a complex premise to a show and while giving us a bunch of backstory that goes along with it. I, I love Deep Space Nine, but that was something their pilot really struggled with. There were points where it just kind of goes on and on and on but with Voyager you really are you are quite literally in the action from the very first second and that really does it a credit the other big moment from the pilot that I loved is the very first big Janeway speech at the end Mm -hmm. where she's basically laying it out that 
their mission of getting home and the fact that they're going to have to work together and that she's the captain for both crews and like taking that authority, but also kind of trying to fuse them together into some sort of family. I feel like that such a highlight of that pilot and something that continued on throughout the first season is this idea of integrating both crews together into a cohesive whole. Now, Andy, there's something I want to know from you. As you watched the first season, were you thinking there was going to be more tension between the Maquis and Starfleet crews than what you saw, or did you think it was decently balanced? I thought they did a good job. They kept bringing the tension back up, which I liked because... I didn't think it would be realistic for them to just be like, okay, we're friends now. Um, So we had several (laughs) episodes that were structured around the tension of the Maquis. The very last episode, Learning Curve, is, is that's the whole point of that episode, is that there's still tension. And the character of Seska, obviously... Lots of yeah, tension yeah. left over from that, and bringing kind of the Maquis Cardassian Starfleet conflict with her, basically, and then also the what's the episode where they want to take that technology, and both Bolana and Tuvok make the decision basically to betray Janeway. State of flux. That episode. Or wait, no, no, sorry. Prime factors. I always mix those two up. Okay. Prime factors. Yeah, that the first like two thirds of that episode was kind of boring, but the very end when you know, you see both Balana and Tuvok make this choice to undermine Janeway and her reaction to that, I thought that was brilliant. Oh yeah, the way that she dresses down Balana and then rips into Tuvok. Oh gosh. It is so emotional. And you never would have thought that Tuvok was going to do something like that. And his reasoning is really interesting. And it's because she can't do it, but you're going to? I love what Janeway says about how you can use logic to justify just about anything. That's its strength and its weakness. She's so right. Absolutely. I remember when um, Tuvok walked in and Bolana was in the middle of, you know, doing her shady shenanigans. And I was like, well, that's it. You know, I thought they were caught. And then uh-huh. the fact that Tuvok was like, I'll do it. I was like, what? <laughs> do you right, know how right. rare it is for me to be shocked by a moment like that? I usually see twists coming. But that one, I just it never occurred to me ever that Tuvok would betray Janeway in any way, shape, or form and would not follow the chain of command and would not go completely by the book. So that was a real highlight for me, that episode. I mean, the first two thirds are basically that due to the man bun being creepy, but the last third was good. You were immediately on to him like, that is a creeper, 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 creeper. You're absolutely right. That dude just gives me the chills. <laughs> okay, my my creep meter, it's it's good. He's also got that weird empty stare. Which, (laughs) that, it, no. Any guy who has that, you know, get away. He's not good news. Well, a good indicator also is anytime a woman is interested in Harry, that's when you know something hinky is up also. (laughs) Yeah, he was having like a super epic date and I was like, when's the console going to blow up? Like, that's my (laughs) metaphor for whenever anything terrible happens to either O'Brien or Harry. I'm like, the console's going to blow up right in their face. Let's face it, Harry's life is a long stream of exploding consoles. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, it's pretty well established in season one already. Harry is going to be the whipping boy. He's either going to die, he's going to get injured. Something is going to happen to poor, poor Harry. (laughs) Well, one of my favorite episodes was the Heroes and Demons, which is the Beowulf one. Oh, that is a very fun one. And it made me laugh that, like, the whole episode is like, Harry's disappeared, but, like, we don't actually even see Harry for (laughs) 99% of that episode. Harry is his own B-plot in an episode that should be about him. Exactly. It's like a Harry episode, but he's not there. And then at the very end, he just pops back up, dressed like Beowulf, just like, what happened? And I'm like, oh my god. I want to see more episodes like that, where just Harry isn't there the whole time, and then the third act, he just shows up dressed like Beowulf, like, what was going on? (laughs) It would have been funny. And they're like, Harry, you missed the whole thing. There's also that episode where they're in like that spider cave with all the spider oh webs or whatever. And they, they transfer. I'm like, they totally loved Harry. And he, like, oh, yeah. Trans- Emanations. 
transported to another world. When they literally swap Harry out for a corpse and it takes him a minute to realize it. (laughs) And he has to die to get back to Voyager. (laughs) Yeah. Not going to be the last time. Yeah. This is an omen, Harry. Get off the ship while you still can, buddy. It's not going to get any better. No no spoilers. Harry, just... Just find just find an asteroid. Set yourself down there. You'll be better off. <laughs> Seriously. You'd be better off walking home, man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Might get home just as fast. You never know. So I want to jump back for half a second to the Janeway-Tuvok relationship. Because I want to talk about how absolutely fantastic their friendship is. Yeah. And how supportive mm. they are of each other. Yes. And that we have a captain who is besties with their Vulcan senior staff and it is not just a Kirk Spock ripoff that is a really good point it really has its own dynamic yeah that could have been a just a clone of that relationship and it's nothing even close we could have definitely seen a repeat of the failed attempt to redo McCoy with Pulaski but no we get something completely new and different here and that's great I love yeah. Tuvok. I think Tuvok is my favorite character so far, except for Janeway, but she's just, like, in a completely different class of her own. But she is. Tuvok, man, I just love, first of all, he pulls off Troll Vulcan very well, <laughs> which is very, very important. So, Trollkin? Trollkin. Yeah. Yay. <laughs> and I just, I just love him the way and I love it that he's got kind of an Odo-esque mystery solver appeal to him as well. Definitely. I I really want him to just quit Voyager and and become a PI to be honest. Yeah, oh Detective Tuvok is awesome. No, you guys, I wanna see both him and Janeway quit Starfleet and become space cops together, lethal weapon (laughs) style. But they're just too rowdy for the force, man. (laughs) That would have been a great spin off show. They're not going to hand in their guns or badges to anyone. And then they, you know, drive off in a Corvette. (laughs) Hell yeah. I would watch that. I would. I would watch that. I I, want to backtrack on one other thing you said a while back, Andy, about the whole Maquis and Starfleet tension. You thought it was enough, but that is actually one of the biggest criticisms about Voyager. I don't know if you've heard that is that a lot of people think that there wasn't nearly enough because I think especially in a lot of, a lot of the hype that was leading up to this show, that was one of the points they were emphasizing the most, was that these crews were not going to get along and there was going to be tension and things were not going to be hunky-dory on the friendly starship uh, Voyager for Starfleet, yada yada. And uh, I think people in general expected a little more grit, and then it seemed like when we did get some... It did seem misplaced, and I found it interesting that you really liked Learning Curve because I think it's an okay episode, but I feel that it is misplaced in its position in this first season. As a season finale? It Well, yeah, it was never meant to be a season finale. Mm-hmm. They cut season one short because they were also filming some episodes for season two at that time, and then they it was supposed to end on the 37s, which is the season two opener. And then the suits at UPN said, no, we want that to be the season opener. And that's why everything landed the way it did. What a weird choice for an opener. Yes. <laughs> it was never meant to be that way. And you can kind of tell. Yeah. And so the thing is, I think they should have switched Eye of the Needle, which is, I think, the sixth episode of the first season with Learning Curve, moved Learning Curve up, had they had hindsight, of course. And that way we have a little bit of that tension earlier on. And then Eye of the Needle... With it being a will-they-or-won't-they-get-home episode, doing that six episodes in, you can kind of figure out that, no, that isn't happening. Now, mm-hmm. as a season finale, though, you maybe might question it just a tad bit, and it makes things a little more interesting. I think Learning Curve is a difficult episode because it's often compared to Lower Decks in the next generation, right? Because you've got these you know, lower crewmen who you're never going to see again <laughs> that you're focusing on. And you're doing that kind of episode when we don't really yet know our senior crew. Right. Like, we don't super know Tuvok, and we don't... I mean, we've had them for 16 episodes at that point, but we don't know them like we knew our TNG cast in Season 7, right? Right, So I think there's... It tried to do too many things. If the... Yeah. If if they continued the tension, I, I don't think this is spoilery, but it... You know, after season one, 
there really isn't that much Federation Maquis tension. The majority of it is in season one. And mm-hmm. I agree that I don't think there was that much of it. I was expecting more based on the hype around it. Mm-hmm. But they could have put that early and made that about integrating the crew. Or if they had continued that storyline throughout the show, they could have put that even season three or four. You know, mm-hmm. when we, right. we knew the workings of that ship a little bit more. I just liked Tuvok being forced to be like, run a school for wayward Maki. <laughs> it made me laugh a lot. If he gets back to the Delta Quadrant, he's going to open a finishing school. <laughs> I also want to know what was wrong with that woman's headband when Rose's headband was apparently fine. Did they update standards or something? Or maybe it was just that Tuvok was personally offended by the loud pattern on it. No, he said it was festive. <laughs> it was red. It could have been a sarcastic, fest- sarcastic <laughs> festive. I mean, <laughs> he is the Trollkin. I mean, I don't know. There was, what, like... F- at least four episodes that were about that tension, weren't there? Kind of, sort of. That's a full quarter of the episodes. No, no, you make a good point. It just seems like they had a couple of episodes addressing it. That's more than most people get, I would think. And, I mean, really, having Seska be a recurring character and have her be shady as all hell and have her turn out to be a Cardassian spy, which is another thing I did not see coming. Yeah, that's pretty fun. <laughs> I could tell pretty, like, at the beginning of that um, Prime Factors, what it's called. At the beginning of that episode I, is when I started really noticing her, because I know she was kind of there before, but I, I just thought she was a throwaway character until she's sitting there and she's like, come on, Belena, come on. And I'm like, this girl is shady. Yeah, you know she's trouble. <laughs> she's the one trying to get you to smoke a roach in the girls' room at the big dance. Exactly. That's right. I was sitting there, I'm like, she is morally ambiguous, is I think how I put it. And then, but I did not see Cardassian spy. I will say, though, that that episode where Seska is unmasked, I guess, like, she was so obviously shady throughout the yeah. whole episode yeah. that I, by the end, I was like, maybe she's innocent because this is way too obvious. <laughs> yeah, that would have been a really exciting twist right there. But I think the whole. You know how we had, like, a spy on this crew? Well, it turns out there was an even deeper down spy. A deeper cut, and you didn't even know it. What? You didn't see that coming at all? Boom. It happened. Y'all missed it. I did like Chakotay's reaction to that. <laughs> yeah. He was like, how clueless am I? <laughs> yeah, poor Chakotay. He had all these spies on his ship. He had no idea. Now, he's far too naive, I, I guess, to be in the Maquis, because wow, dude. How did he lead a rebel organization with that level of naivete? He needed more security checks or something, because dude did not have it working. Did it, did he just make up a secret handshake and consider that good? <laughs> that seems entirely possible. Well, I love, too, that at the end of that Seska episode, he went to Tuvok and he was like, do I suck at this? And I was like, yes. Yeah. Yes, you do. <laughs> yes, you do. You very clearly do, sir. And I love yes. that Tuvok is just like, how would you like me to be honest today? <laughs> Gale of one to ten, how much of a dressing down do you need from me right now? Yeah. If you say ten, I will give you ten. Trollkin. Yes, Tuvok can accommodate to any level. That's his versatility as a Vulcan. I really, the more I think about it, the more I'm realizing that Tuvok is by far my favorite character because, like, all of my favorite moments include him. The other one being when Neelix tries to comfort him with Plomeek soup, which, first of Ah, all, our Women at Warp listeners know how much Plomeek soup matters to us around here. Okay? (laughs) The level of love we have for a good Plomeek soup scene (laughs) and whether or not it gets thrown to the ground in a fit of Vulcan anger. So he brought, he brings Plomeek soup over and I'm like, does he not know? Does he not know how important Plomeek soup is? And then (laughs) Tuvok's just like, what did you do to this? <laughs> such a great moment. It's just like, oh, well, I did this and this and this. He's like, this is not Plomeek soup. Get this away from me. Now, if he had picked it up and thrown it, now that would have been perfect. 
if he were going through Pond Far. <laughs> I think there are definitely points in the show when we do want to see something get thrown in the face of Neelix, but we've got a whole <laughs> series to get there. Yeah, especially in these earlier episodes. I mean, there really are some times when he's just a pure shithead. He is so insufferable in this first season. And we do... Sometimes. We do get some moments with him. We do get to see the character progress. But this first season, oh my god. Why is he here? He starts off pretty clownish. But since we are talking about Neelix, I want to talk about uh, Jatrell. Because Andy, when you tweeted this, I I found what you said so interesting. Jatrell is definitely the Neelix high point of the season. Oh, by far and away. Well, yeah, I mean, up until Jatrell, they literally didn't let him do anything be annoying and then also controlling to Cass. So, like, before we dive into uh, Jatrell, I want to talk a little bit about Cass and Neelix because this is at the heart of why I hated Neelix so much. Because it's creepy AF. Yes. (laughs) Yes. <laughs> he was very annoying and obnoxious and all of that, and his suits, and that hat, and oh my god. But still, like, the thing that really made me dislike him is the way, like, Cass would come to him with things, and he would just dismiss her. Like, she would be like, I think I'm having, you know, these these feelings and these powers and stuff, and he's like, no, you aren't. Like, mm. Mm-hmm dismissive not to mention the age and experience difference between the two of them she is uh yeah she's much younger clearly and she's only like what two three years old in case no, she is she's not even two in season one oh yet. my gosh and it's that just makes so much of their relationship not okay the level of control he has over her and how he yeah. uses that against her My big gripe about their relationship is, yes, the age difference does make it a little creepy, but it it feels more to me almost like either a, not not quite father-daughter, maybe more Uh, like brother-sister. And that that ain't right. (laughs) But he still has this weird, like, possessive, controlling, jealousy energy. He's very childish. Um, And he treats her like a child, which is really uncomfortable. Mm -hmm. Yes, yes, very much. And she has so much wisdom in that beautiful head of hers that there's a part of me that questions sometimes, why are you with this bumbling idiot? But if you think about the culture of the Okampa, they they got nothing. You know, they've been dependent on the caretaker for so many centuries. They don't know how to feed themselves half the time, much less anything else. Yeah. So it's literally a case of her having no other option. I mean, I mean, this is her way out. This is escapism, and so be it. But when we get to Jatrell, he finally has something to do other than be super obnoxious. We get some dark backstory there, and it's interesting. Yeah. yeah. Sad clown. Which makes his entire shtick make a little more sense. He's always trying to be super upbeat and make everyone else happy because he's got some dark stuff in his past and that's how he's dealing with it almost like the 10th doctor yeah i know people who are like this it makes a lot of sense yeah you know you try and drown away the sadness with happier things and happier times totally and it becomes obsessive to a point when you're in that situation because again you've got you're trying to put as much emotional distance between you and the heartache in your past right right yeah, and I, in a way, I almost feel that Neelix, like, part of why he comes off as so annoying is because he is trying so hard. And you want to hold that against him because it's just so damn annoying. But I feel like after this, you have a wider context that makes it a little more palatable. It, yeah, well, then suddenly you go from, like, I want to slap you to I want to hug you. Yeah. Yeah, it was much needed characterization. Like, up until that point, every time he would come on screen, I'd be like, no. how would we feel if this episode had happened earlier on in the season and we had had this as more of an establishment pre a lot of that obnoxious bumbling attitude that we Mm. saw good question would that have changed the entire dynamic for us or would that have been too early on i don't know if it would have changed the entire dynamic but i definitely am gonna be looking at neelix differently now yeah. So it just mm-hmm. adds a layer to his motivations that was sorely lacking before. Also, I, I really want someone to just go up to him and say, Neelix, stop lying. Stop saying you can do these things. You are, yeah. you are actively hurting the people around you. 
Good God, man. Yes. Yeah, at this point, he does not understand that. And I think a part of it is just that's how he's gotten by all this time. He doesn't operate by Starfleet rules. He has basically gotten by on the skin of his teeth. It definitely makes sense that being a flimflam man is essentially how he's gotten as far as he has. And now he's in a situation where he's stuck with the same people who actually can get to know him and call him out on it. Right, he has no idea what stability actually looks and feels like. If they put more focus on that character-wise throughout season one alone, that would have been really good establishment for the character. Oh yeah, that would have been really interesting because I think one of the more obnoxious things that Neelix does is he takes the captain's private dining room and converts it into a kitchen for the mess hall, right? Yeah. Well, first off, okay, as much as I love Janeway, on this little ship, she does not need her own personal dining hall that big of a room? No, it's much better use to have it as a kitchen. Was it a dining and ballroom? Yeah, I mean, okay, if you were ferrying diplomats, I would get it, but this is a science vessel. It's not the Enterprise D. So it is much better converted as a kitchen. This isn't the USS Space Yacht. (laughs) Right? Right, but it's not so much that he did it, it's that he did it without asking her permission. Yeah. Yeah, and that's extraordinarily obnoxious of him. And he's very lucky that Janeway just didn't throw him off the ship right then and there. Are you saying you would have? Yeah, I would have. Uh, I might have airlocked him, yeah. <laughs> Possibly, and especially with that better than coffee substitute, he gives me that. He's gone. Yeah. Bye forever. You give me that and we're drinking Talaxian blood for the next week. But I do think that's where a lot of his like trying to be helpful motivation comes from, is that he doesn't want to get kicked off this ship. Right. This is the best that he's had in forever. Oh, right. It's true. He knows a good thing when he sees it. It's true. So he is trying too hard. I mean, I guess that is very clear. He's making himself indispensable in every way that he can so that he isn't booted off the ship. He's trying his damnedest to, by trying to establish himself as an asset that he isn't. Right, right. Which is very annoying when you are watching the crew in a situation where they need whatever they can get. Right, and he just can't provide it. Nope. He has no idea. Nope. And they could have made him an asset, right? His whole speech at the beginning was, I know these people and I know this area of space. But we don't see a lot of follow-up on that. Right, he never really provides significant information on a regular basis. He does once or twice. Right. No, he's much better used as a cook, quite honestly. Right? <laughs> but and then we leave I'm I, we leave the space that he's familiar with relatively quickly after season 1. <laughs> so that whole reason behind keeping him around is gone. Yeah. <laughs> right. At this point right. they're just keeping him around so that Kess doesn't get lonely. That don't make a lot of sense. Because he's cooking and they need to conserve replicator rations. And in that aspect, he did win. Okay. That, we'll give him that. Of course, he did introduce Leola Root. So that is a check against. So, (laughs) I don't know. I would say with season one, that's really 50-50. You can take (laughs) it or leave it, right? (laughs) So what about Kess, then? Uh, Kess. She's a beautiful little pixie. She is so wise beyond her one-year-old brain that, you know, starting off with the telepathy, I was really worried when I first watched the show that they were going to go for a Deanna Troy syndrome, you know, because there's that episode with, like, the nuclear explosion, you know, uh, what is it, time and again. Yeah. With mm-hmm. the candy corn costumes. <laughs> uh, you know, she's, the candy corn She's corset. crying, and it reminds me of Deanna Troy in an encounter at Fire Point where she's like, oh, pain and despair. And I'm like, no, not again. Don't do it again. No. Don't do me and like this, Fortunately, they don't. They, they kind of, they go there, but then they veer off a little bit, and they give it a little more of a twist and make it a little more interesting. There's a little more nuance to it, at least. I also really enjoy her her relationship with the Doctor. Yeah. And her support yes. of the doctor and all of the, even the B-plot shenanigans stuff when her and the doctor are working together to solve problems. I think she brings a lot to that. She has a way of looking at things in a different way from everybody else that's really helpful. And so I don't feel like they gave her a whole ton of growing to do, but I also thought she was a very pleasant presence and 
I really appreciated how supportive she was of the doctor, and she has some really great moments, especially at the beginning where she's like, why are you treating him like this? How dare right. you? And really making Janeway and the crew, but especially Janeway, really think about the way that she's been treating the doctor up until that point and like really fighting for him in quite a beautiful way. Absolutely. And she's the first person to ask if he has a name. And forces him to ask why he doesn't. Yes, yeah, she's playing both sides of this coin. I mean, Kess is this great social justice warrior. Who knew, <laughs> right? Uh, it's so fantastic. I loved it when you tweeted that out, Andy. I just thought, yes, you nailed it. This is one of the <laughs> highest points of season one, in my opinion. No, Kess does not grow maybe a whole lot as a character. We don't learn a whole lot about her beyond the pilot. But she does do these amazing things and good for her. See, I'm going to disagree. I think Kess grows a lot during season one. You know, when we first meet her, she is completely naive, but she's learning a lot. She's just from her observations, she's becoming the social justice warrior. But then she wants to learn everything the doctor will teach her. Oh, yeah. Yeah. She is a sponge. He gives her her medical journals and textbooks and she comes back a day later and she's like, I know it all. What's next? Just by the end of that one season, she's become as indispensable as Neelix wishes he was. <laughs> right? Because she's getting medical training, and yeah. by golly, they need more people helping out in sickbay, and this cements her place aboard the ship, sure. And someone who can leave sickbay. They really needed to get Paris out of there. That was not working. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah, that, that's never a good idea. Is it something like he has two semesters of biology and therefore he's qualified? No. Is there not any blue shirt that has more <laughs> scientific knowledge than Helmboy? Come on. That was a horrible idea. All of the sickbay staff died. Or they were coming on Tuesday. I forget which. <laughs> <laughs> One thing I want to say about Kess, I feel like as a... Role-wise, she serves really well as a foil to the other characters for a lot of different characters as a figure who's new to everything, but not totally naive, still learning, but again, is wise beyond her years. She's one of those characters who just in concept is really good at making other characters reveal more of themselves. Do you think that Kess was Voyager's attempt at the... Spock Data Odo character? I wouldn't be surprised if she was. I don't feel like she was, but she um, definitely had the potential to be. Hmm, interesting. I never thought of her in that light. Yeah, because she is definitely an outsider. It's true, though. Yeah, she is. She is. I've always thought of the Doctor as that yeah, character. Yeah, doc the Doctor carries it very well, for one thing, and I think he ends up uh, providing that role more than Cass actually does. I really yeah. love the character of the Doctor, and I it could <laughs> feel like such a rerun of Data, but yeah. the difference is is when we come into D TNG, Data is already established. Like, yeah. People have already accepted him. When we come in with the Doctor, it's like we're getting to see that process from the very beginning. Mm-hmm. We are seeing the character's evolution in real time. And the yeah. reaction of the crew. Yeah learning and changing it's basically what they wanted to do with pulaski and failed yeah i feel mm -hmm. like they do it so much better in this first season of voyager and he just gets so many amazing moments the comic timing there is oh robert picardo is just that guy has incredible timing amazing and he definitely <laughs> has some mccoy in him absolutely. yes <laughs> and I really loved the the Doctor episode Heroes and Demons. The oh yeah, one. yeah. <laughs> the number of times I was just like, "Yeah, you go, Schweitzer." <laughs> <laughs> I love that name, by the way. I I almost wish he would have stuck with it. Schweitzer, Schweitzer, Schweitzer. I know the the Doctor and the name. Yeah, he's Ugh. still nameless. It's such a credit, though, to the writing of this character, though, that we're still that early on in the show. But we are so already by this point so emotionally invested in this adventure for this character, right? But we mentioned yeah. earlier, we were talking about all the press leading up to the show. Yeah. There was stuff in the press before the show aired about how this character was going to start out without a name. And then he was going to choose one. Mm -hmm. And then they published mm -hmm. what it was going to be. And it just, ugh. 
really early Voyager novels have him choosing the name Doc Zimmerman. Yep. Because that is the name of the creator and they was That's they were the one they, thinking they published of in articles too. Fearing in that name. Yeah. And yeah. so Don't they call him that in some of the scripts also? Yeah. They call him that in the closed captions, I can tell you that for sure. <laughs> Why that got abandoned, I have no idea. I don't know if it was too easy or if they I guess they forgot about it. Do they like the mystique, though, of the Doctor not really having a name? I'm not really sure. Oh, speaking of really early press, here's an interesting thing about all that, is Neelix was supposed to be the breakout character of the show. They were putting their money on that. (laughs) And then you know what? I think Robert Picardo kind of stole that from Ethan Phillips by basically portraying a better character as the comic foil. Robert Picardo was also just one of those actors who... Up until this point, as far as I know, the uh, he was kind of seen as one of those great stage actors who hadn't really gotten his due. His like big, well, best known role was in The Howling as a werewolf rapist. So what? I'm not. He kidding. was also the gym teacher on The Wonder Years. That's yes. true. Those were kind of his two big things. So we've got this great actor who's kind of a triple threat, but no one really knows him for that much aside from these kind of gimmicky roles and now he gets a chance to shine and that's really cool yeah can i say though that heroes and demons it really made me laugh that they actually fridged a holodeck character oh man (laughs) yeah i I was like sad about it and then i was like did they really just fridge a holodeck character (laughs) are you surprised at all not really but it was it was just it was funny i was like really Okay. I mean, I guess it's better than fridging an actual person, but still. I guess. <laughs> I, only a little, but... Well, you gotta spin the holodeck malfunction aspect of things a little differently, you know, each time. You can only polish off that chestnut so many times. I do <laughs> like that Voyager is once again running into these, like, photonic life forms. Right, because mm-hmm. that's that's sort of what's going on in that episode, and there there really are these new kinds of life that we we got some of these energy being type things in TOS a lot, but we haven't really seen a whole bunch since then. So Voyager is, I think, taking advantage of the Delta Quadrant in that way. Right. Yeah, that's a really good point. I'm so glad you brought that up. They are kind of going back to that whole strange new worlds aspect of Star Trek introducing a lot of different types of new aliens. Right. You know, we know we're not going to see uh, the same aliens over and over and over and over and over till the end of time. And it, it's also great that they have unique aliens like in uh, the cloud where it's mm-hmm. uh, it's it's a sentient being, but it's it's a quote unquote cloud. You know what I mean? Yeah. Concept wise, it really does give them the opportunity to have a an alien species of the week without having to ever yes. revisit it. Very much so, yes. But I want to talk about Bellana. Uh, oh, let's talk Bellana. Who is the character who arguably grows the most in this season? That is my belief, anyway. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. She goes from being the rebel, kind of with a cause, but we don't really know why in the world she's in the Maquis to eventually embracing her role as a Starfleet head of engineer. I mean, that's a lot of growth. Yeah, we know that she has a lot of anger and that she doesn't do well with authority and that she got kicked out of the Academy. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, we learn her backstory a lot in Faces, which is one of my favorite episodes, not just of season one, but in all of Voyager. That is such a fantastic fantastic character growth story and plot wise it's such a great kind of story throwback to the original series too right yeah absolutely and horrifying i also really love all of the scenes where she talks to herself yeah it's pretty impressive how she pulled how well she pulled it off yeah the acting is incredible and it's really because the duality of of people is something that Star Trek examines quite often, and sometimes they succeed and sometimes they fail. But in this case, I think they really succeeded in showing us, you know, why Bellana feels so torn between these two sides of herself and how nice it is to see her embracing who she is as a yes. full person. And while it's Spock who really is kind of widely considered 
Star Trek's main representation of coming from um, a mixed species as a metaphor for mixed race family. I feel like Balana embodies a lot more of of that the stress that goes with that and the tension that goes with that. And it's a really big part of her character, which feels very important. Oh, absolutely. It's definitely, I would say more amplified even over Spock, just because I think Balana is more angry and more torn about who she is. Well, she's in a position where she's abs, uh, where if you were not of a species that was based around logic, you probably would be really upset about it. There'd probably be a lot of things to upset you about it. Well, right. And I mean, as a Klingon, your first instinct is going to be anger. Yeah. And so that's very immediate with her. One thing I love about the episode, though, is that it shows just how much she needed both sides of herself. Absolutely, like how that was yeah. shown to her and to us as the audience. That was so beautiful because we've all had that kind of conflict, right? Yeah. And I found that so relatable. Well, one of the things I love about kind of the introduction we get to her in Parallax, we find out she's punched a guy and I remember first seeing this episode and going oh great she's gonna be just a straw angry girl for them to soften up and I felt by the end of the episode I was totally on board with the character I felt 100% down with it because we get this establishment of she was provoked she was in a situation where she could have got angry and of course she got angry she was in the, the right to be uh we're gonna try and show her trying to make the effort to get along with people but we're not going to force the character to rewrite herself. And I really Mm -hmm. appreciate that because of how little I feel like you get to see um, angry women, standoffish women, women who are allowed to not just be, you know, happy all the time on TV to say the least of in science fiction, as we've known it up until this point, that feels important. That feels important to have a character who's based so much about being aggravated and their story is not based around them just chilling out. She's allowed to be angry and I appreciate that so much. The other thing that I love about Balana is her relationship with Janeway and how yes. we have such a mentor relationship with Janeway, but they also relate to each other so well as equals when it comes to science. Oh, it's so good to watch some science. Like, them sciencing together is just one of the absolute joys of Voyager. I don't understand a word they're saying, but they're excited. The point is that they're techno-babbling together. Oh, yeah, and their excitement is our excitement. Yes. I know that I've talked about it plenty of times before, but I really don't know. I, this might sound overdramatic, but it's kind of true. I don't know what my life would have been if I hadn't seen Janeway and Bolana sciencing together every week on TV. Yeah. It had an impact. Yeah. Definitely. And it's just so enjoyable to watch. Showing women in science as not just an outlier, but as part of a community and a welcome part of that community is very important. I think that's a great thing that Voyager does with Bolana and Janeway both being scientists. And not only that, it's but they're not in competition with each no, other. No, that's fantastic to show people camaraderie, not rivalry. Yes. You do not always need to pit your female characters against each other. Or ever. You don't ever yes. need to pit your female characters against Definitely. each other. And honestly, they could have gone that route, too, because I do think at the end of Caretaker, Bolana is angry with Janeway for stranding them out there. Of course, yeah. And, I mean, she has the right to be angry like that, and they could have been at odds, but no, they went the other way, and it... It's so, it, it makes, it's so rewarding in that sense to see them doing this. The portrayal of both characters benefits from that also. Yeah. 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 And as an audience, man, think about that impact, what they did there. I mean, yes, it was important that we had a female captain, but female scientists, I think, was even more important in terms of impacting women entering STEM fields now. Yeah. Yeah, I know so many people, and I'm sure you guys too, you hear it all the time about people who chose careers in the STEM fields because of this show. Yeah, it was important, and I I don't know if the writers understood just how important it really was. The impact, though, definitely has paid off. And then we have Chakotay. Yeah. It's Chakotay. Now, Andy, Chakotay. Thoughts on Chakotay? I feel kind of bad for him in the (laughs) sense that... They never gave him anything to do other than pontificate about, like, anthropological concepts. 
and talk about medicine wheels and spirit animals and stuff. And it was super frustrating. And you remember how we were laughing about they gave Harry an episode where he wasn't actually in it? They have that episode where Chakotay is basically saving the crew, but he's not in it. <laughs> Cathexis. Yes! yes! He's possessing people. And, like, the whole time they're like, oh, well, Chakotay's brain dead, moving on. And they, they have a whole episode where they're like, somebody's doing all of these shenanigans to save us. Who could it be? And they, like, forget Chakotay exists for, like, a full 40 minutes. And then at the end they're they're like, Oh, it was him. And he wakes up and he's like, yeah, that was me. And I was like, really? Chakotay's in that episode for like a solid three minutes. Yeah. Robert Beltran had to work really hard for that one. Wow. He had to lay on that sick bay bed 18 hours a day. I mean, it was Did rough. he like have Lakers tickets that week or something? <laughs> he might have. Who knows? Someone tweeted me that uh, Rick Berman hated him. Oh. And refused oh, really? to write for him. But I don't know. That's just something that somebody tweeted to me. And I haven't seen that anywhere else. But if that's true, that's super unprofessional. Yeah. Well, you know, the thing with Robert Beltran is he does speak his mind. And I don't know if this was happening this early on in the series. But as the series goes on, he does express more and more dissatisfaction with his role on the show, his character, where it's going, or maybe not. And that, I think, that did kind of shut him down. You know, it was like this kind of cycle. And the more he spoke out, the less they get, they give him. And, you know, season one is just like this metaphor already for Chakotay. He's brain dead. He doesn't exist. Oh, God. <laughs> oh, the poor wow. guy. And he's supposed to be the first officer. And if you think about any of the other shows... First officer is pretty freaking important. First officer with the least amount of dialogue. They also started to set up like a flirty relationship with Janeway. And then I don't like, don't tell me if that goes anywhere. But like in the first season alone, it's like they the very first couple episodes, they kind of set it up and then it goes nowhere. And I'm just kind of like, what does this character get to do? It's basically nothing. And then also... Just the cringeworthy, stereotypical Native American. Yeah, that is. Oh, yeah, it's so painful. It is so bothersome. They apparently had some expert uh, on Native American ancestry working on this show, but you could have fooled me. I mean, they could have made it all up and had the same result. Well, the thing is that they did. He was a fraud. Actually, yes, I do believe that was the case. He was completely full of it and gave them nothing good whatsoever. And that's why Chakotay has like this weird kind of jumble of Native American customs that don't belong to any one particular tribe because he's a mishmash of several Native American cultures, plus a couple of other things thrown in for good measure. So he's like a member of the Native American culture conglomerate that supposedly exists in the future? I guess. I don't want to <laughs> give too much great. away because more of this happens later yeah. on. But it is annoying, you know, that flute when music when it comes oh, up. It's like, oh, we're going to hear about Chakotay. Okay. Oh, wow. Yeah, the poor guy. I mean, I don't blame Robert Beltran for being frustrated. I really don't. Another really common complaint about Voyager and Chakotay and really a lot of the first season that was happening online at the time is that... The, 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 again, this is what people posted on the internet, is that they gave so much to the women characters that the men didn't get anything good. And all the men were pushovers. (laughs) Hey, it was out there. So I feel like it's something we should talk about. Oh, I did forget about Paris, too. I mean, he's there. He's there. I feel like Paris is like Riker light. (laughs) Only less charismatic. (laughs) Oh my god, he definitely is in this first season for sure because they have that lovely episode they do with him, ex post facto, where he's being accused of a murder and that's, I mean, that's just about all we get. Yeah, that's basically a rerun of a Riker episode. Yes, yes. And he doesn't get a whole lot else to do in this first season. So basically we know that he is an ex-con or, well, well, yeah, he, you know, he's an ex-convict. He was in New Zealand prison. And uh, he was in the Maquis for a short time, and he likes the ladies. Yeah, pretty much it. Yeah, not a great guy. Not really. Uh, Not yet. Not exactly a grabbing character. 
Yeah, I mean, he's 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 pretty boring at the very beginning, or at least he is to me. Now, if only they could have given, you know, Bolana stuff to Paris, then everything would have been better. No. Oh, internet <laughs> no. boys. Silly internet no. boys. Sorry, dude bros. You lose on this show. <laughs> so, we talked about Janeway a little bit and her introduction, but we haven't really talked about her character. And I just feel like we get from the very beginning with Caretaker, she shows us how she's going to run this ship. Not only the whole, this is a Starfleet ship sort of thing, but that she's not going to compromise the principles that she believes in to get them home early. And a lot of people on the ship have a problem with that. From our first shot of her, we get a good establishment of her as a character. How great is that? I just got so impressed with her leadership over and over and over again. And just how well she handles everything and how decisive she is. But at the same time, decisive, but not unapproachable. Yeah. I totally. Just, I just really love her. Yeah. I, I mean, of all the Starfleet captains, I would work for any of them. But Janeway would definitely be my first pick because you know very well who's in charge. You know that she's going to make the best decision she possibly can in that moment. But at the same time, she's not a complete hard ass either. She has a kind of like a gentle side. And I love the balance that they give her between those two things. I mean, they could have really screwed this up, but I think they did a decent job. I mean, we get all of these lovely little scenes where, like, she goes and sits with Harry and tries to encourage him and stuff like that, and I just really appreciate that. But she also doesn't let anybody walk all over her. And when she has to put her foot down, she does. And I don't know, I just... I was really, really impressed with her. I think that from this first season that if I had to compare all of the other captains in their first season, I think that Janeway is the strongest one so far. Or at least for me, she is. She's given some interesting situations, too. Yeah. Where, uh, like, she has to deal with Kola of the Kazon, and she has mm-hmm. that great line about bullies, and I don't like you, Kola. And then, <laughs> on the other end of things, though, I mean, she can be, she can have an emotional appeal when she needs to use it, too. Like, when she's talking to the Romulan, uh, Telecremor, in Eye of the Needle, where she kind of latches onto the fact that, oh, you have a daughter you haven't even seen because you've been out in space. Well, how about this connection? And she uses that to her advantage while she's in that pink nighty, by the way. Yeah. Which, yeah, <laughs> awesome. <laughs> I mean, she's got the whole, she's the whole package. She's super smart. She's sexy. She can, she has fantastic leadership. What more could you possibly want in a captain? It's great. There's more than one moment in the first season where Janeway literally like just made me go. Uh-uh. <laughs> <laughs> The woman is mad sexy. She really is, man, yes. And Kate Mulgrew is sexy. She just she just is. I don't know who the best captain is. Like, I feel like we could have a really long debate about that. But I know who the sexiest one is, and it's Janeway. <laughs> Hands down. No question. Let's be real. I love that she's not afraid to change her mind. Yeah, that's very important leadership skill. When there's any decision that comes up, she listens to her crew And she might have an idea of what she wants to do. But if somebody else has a better idea, she'll admit it and go with it. Mm Mm-hmm. Totally. Overall, you guys, I really liked the first season of Voyager. Yeah. Glad you did. There were a handful of episodes that were either average or below average. But for the most part, I thought it was a solid season. And I really enjoyed the crew and meeting the crew. And yeah, I'm I'm on board for Voyager. I'm excited to see where they go. Welcome to the voyage. Sweet. All right. Do we have any more to add on Voyager season one? I can't wait to get to Voyager season two. Yay. Yay. (laughs) Can't wait to see all the tweets, Andy. It really is fun watching you go through something that I experienced now more than 20 years ago for the first time. Absolutely. And watching you freak out the way I did during Faces was pretty great. Yes. <laughs> that episode is and it's terrifying. see what you freak out about. Yeah. That's what really gets me is what gets you going as opposed to what got me going. Sometimes it's the same. Sometimes it's not. So this is fun. <laughs> Please keep going. Binge, 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 binge. <laughs> yeah. 
I'm doing a Voyager rewatch along with Andy's first time watch, and it's a lot of fun to go and read those tweets. Oh, yeah. <laughs> well, I'll keep going. Can't promise it'll be fast. I tend to be slow, but I will always keep going. That's a good philosophy. All right. So I think that just about does it for this episode. Shar, where can people find you on the internet? You can most likely find me on Twitter, and my handle is oh, the Profanity. You can also find me co-hosting Punch It! with Tristan Riddell, and that is on the Nerd Party Network. We talk all things writing in pop culture, including Star Trek, and sometime eventually, maybe, we're going to come back to Voyager. Just maybe not quite yet. We're branching out, we're doing all other facets of Star Trek and other things, having a good time. But I, I do love Voyager so much. This has been a lot of fun, guys. I am always game, by the way, to be talking some Voyager <laughs> because it is my first true undying love. I just love Voyager. I love these characters so much. And we love hearing you talk about them. Yeah, you were the first person we thought of. <laughs> <laughs> it's a good thing because I've talked a lot of Voyager over the years. <laughs> but I guess I'm not done yet. So thanks, you guys, for having me. Of course. And Grace? You can find me on Twitter at BoneCrusherJank. Andy? Yeah, the easiest place to find me is Twitter, at First Time Trek, where, as you probably have guessed, I'm live tweeting my way through the first time through Star Trek. Um, I'm doing DS9 and Voyager right now, so. Awesome. And I'm Sue. You can find me on Twitter at Spaltor. That's S P A L T O R. And you can reach the entire crew on Twitter at Women at Warp on Facebook at facebook.com slash women at warp or by sending us an email to crew at women at warp.com and you can find our show notes and our blog posts at would you believe it women at warp.com I don't believe it no way